0: The Harold Washington Library in downtown Chicago on, the, um, on State Street between Jackson and Congress is probably one of the largest lending libraries in the world, if not the largest lending library in the world. But on the first floor is something called the Popular Library, where you can check out DVDs, CDs, and if you're old fashioned, even books. On the wall above the checkout counter there is a quote by Marx, uh, Groucho, not Karl. It says, outside a dog, a book is man's best friend. Inside a dog, it's too dark to read. Get it? Figuratively, outside is a synonym for with the exception of. So Marx is saying a book and a dog are our best friends but literally ins- literally inside and outside address the physical location, and the humor comes from the mix of the literal and the figurative meanings colliding. And in fact, this is the very way the gospel this Sunday functions. I find Mark's humor appealing because I like books and also because I come from a dog-loving family. One example thereof, My mother got a black Labrador to keep her company in her later years. She treated it like one of her grandchildren. Every Sunday, the dog got jelly-filled donuts dunked in coffee. My mother named her dog Muggsy um, after one of her cousins. Don't ask. This is the point where two mysteries intersect. Why she named a black Lab after her cousin and why her cousin was named Muggsy. At least the second part of the mystery was finally solved for me when I finally met her cousin and the resemblance was striking. But I digress. Back to the checkout counter at Harold Washington Library. There is a subtleness to Groucho Marx's humor that eludes us in our present cultural darkness where everyone is outraged anxious or irritated in various combinations, depending on what CNN, Fox News, MSNBC are reporting on at any given moment. Marx's quote also plays on our cultural assumptions about household pets in general and dogs in particular. The assumption is that a dog is a man or a woman's, or so as not to leave anyone out here, a child's best friend. But not every culture makes these same assumptions. In Middle Eastern cultures, dogs are regarded as filthy, unclean animals. Calling someone a dog is the penultimate Middle Eastern insult. In Saudi Arabia, in fact, it is against the law to have a dog as a pet. Muslims share this revulsion for canines with first-century Jews. Dogs earned this disdain by behaving, well, by behaving like dogs behave. In ancient Palestine, they were semi-savage scavengers roaming the garbage dumps and were not above eating unburied corpses. And this is why the Romans crucified their victims close to the ground, not high up as we might imagine, but very close to the ground so as to make it easier for Fido to eat the bodies. Now, that may be more background to the gospel than you care to hear, but at the very least, it provides the cultural backdrop to this odd and somewhat perplexing episode of Matthew's gospel. Most commentators and a lot of people listening to the gospel in churches this weekend will probably be quietly offended by Jesus' comparison of the Canaanite woman with a dog, offended for all the wrong reasons. According to the outline of the Gospel, Matthew puts this story directly following a discussion of ritual purity. Ritual purity, taken together with the regulations about the food and the Sabbath, not eating pork, were some of the most important religious and cultural markers of Judaism. Not eating pork, for instance, or keeping the Sabbath holy by not working, uh, was a way to distinguish a Jew from his or her pagan neighbor that is, to distinguish those who were within Israel from those who were outside of it. But it was also a way to recognize a good Jew from a bad one. These observances gave the Jewish people their identity as the one unique people chosen by God to be his covenant-bearing stewards. So salvation is from the Jews, as Jesus says to the Samaritan woman in John's Gospel. And his contemporaries would have added that it was also for the Jews. Pagans need not apply. This is where the woman enters the story. Matthew calls her a Canaanite, and by this he means that she is not a member of the chosen people but an outsider, a pagan descendant of one of Israel's bitterest enemies. She had no claim to Israel's God because she has no claim to the covenant with its blessings and its promises, and more important, she has no claim to Israel's Messiah. So she does a bold thing there, not merely by addressing the Lord, a Jew, by asking his help, but by speaking to him in public. And this is precisely why Jesus appears to put her off, or perhaps to put it more bluntly, to snub her. But what jars our modern sensibilities is his remark that it is not right to take the bread of the children and throw it to the dogs. In the analogy, the children equal the Jews, of course, and dogs equal the pagans. There's nothing in the text, no hint of a smile on Jesus' face or the possibility of an ironic tone of voice that helps soften this ultimate Middle Middle Eastern insult. In effect, he can be understood as saying that the only people with any legitimate claim on him are the people of Israel. Matthew's passage portrays for us a Lord who is deeply and authentically Jewish and who shares Israel's cultural and religious assumptions. And this can be a shock for those of us who have made our own cultural assumptions about who Jesus of Nazareth actually was and is. There is no scarcity of caricatures from the blonde-haired, blue-eyed, liberal, progressive, level, revolutionary in blue jeans to a right-wing social conservative in a Brooks, Brooks Brothers suit. These characters, character, caricatures de-Judaize Christ because people are offended by the scandal of particularity, the scandal that God chose to act in a Palestinian Jew living in a cultural backwater of the Roman Empire in the first century AD. That he did so, and we believe he did, is one of the mysteries of the economy of salvation. There's one last surprise in the Gospel that probably would have shocked Matthew's Jewish Christian community. The woman receives her miracle, after all, because she calls him Lord. And then she does something else. She, as the text says, does homage. The Greek verb there is proskuneo. It means to fall down in an attitude of worship before a god. So, in effect, She is acknowledging Jesus as Israel's true King and Messiah, but also as someone who is divine. This is a theological insight made all the more stunning by its absence in many of Jesus' own contemporaries, who who merely refer to him most of the time as teacher. And as we will see next Sunday, St. Peter arrives at a similar conclusion to the woman's at Caesarea Philippi. I'm tempted to think that he first got the idea from the Canaanite woman. If so, it wouldn't be the last time that women in the gospel evangelized their menfolk. In the end, the faith of the Canaanite woman breaks down the boundaries between Jew and pagan As Isaiah foretells in the first reading, God's house, his church, the new Israel, will become a house of prayer for all peoples, where Christ himself becomes the acceptable sacrifice for our salvation and for that of the whole world. And we will eat that bread that comes from our master's table.